We're blessed this afternoon to have Colton Balance as our speaker. Uh, Colton is uh, a relatively new Christian. He came through the school, graduated in 2021, so that's not uh, very far back. Uh, we recognize while he was in school the great talent that he had. Uh, I especially enjoyed having him work with us at Conifer for the past year or so. Uh, he left and went to work with Wayne Jones uh, for a year in San Marcos. Uh, the school decided they wanted to bring him back to be part of our faculty and staff here. He's in charge of our alumni relations, reaching out to the alumni. Uh, and we, he, at that same time, when he decided to come back here to work with the school, he contacted Conifer and said, can I work with the church there? We're glad to have him. He's an outstanding preacher, young but outstanding. Great teacher. Uh, I was present at Columbine, excuse me, Conifer, when he taught his first lesson. You'd have thought he'd been teaching for years. It was great. Uh, he has the great ability to take a text and really draw some great principles from that text uh, beyond his years. Does a great job of it. And then has a great ability to present it where we can understand it and apply it. So I know that we're in for a treat for some great education and motivation as we hear Colton Balance speak to us today. Preach the word. Preach the word. Always get nervous when Wayne gets up to talk about me. <laughs> Not because I'm afraid of what he's going to say, because I'm afraid I'm going to start crying. Um, I love this man. He, he's been a mentor to me um, more than anybody. Uh, two of my greatest mentors in this room, Wayne Berger and Wayne Jones. Um, fantastic men. I told you I'm going to get choked up, but learned a lot from these men, um, and I appreciate them very much. There's a, a country music singer named Jamie Johnson. Uh, some of you may be familiar with him. In fact, he's coming to Denver soon if you want to go see him. Um, but he, he wrote a song called Lead Me Home. Um, not one of his most popular songs, but one of his best uh, by far. I want to read a couple of lines of that song to you. He said, I have seen my last tomorrow. I'm holding my last breath. Goodbye, sweet world of sorrow. My new life begins with death. I'm standing on the mountain. I can hear the angel song. I'm reaching over Jordan. Take my hand, Lord. Lead me home. All my burdens are behind me. I've prayed my final prayer. Don't you cry over my body, because that ain't me lying there. I'm standing on the mountain. I can hear the angel song. I'm reaching over Jordan. Take my hand. Lord, lead me home. That's a beautiful song, isn't it? Uh, it's a great picture of hope. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard that song. I'll never forget it. I was probably seven or eight years old. Uh, I was at my great-grandmother's funeral. Um, and I had only ever met my great-grandmother once or twice, so I wasn't super emotionally attached to the whole situation. But I remember when they played this song. We were in the old Baptist church in the backwoods in East Texas, and uh, I remember sitting down and they played this song and tears just filled my eyes. I didn't know why. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't super emotionally involved in the relationship with my great grandmother. And um, I just remember those words sticking with me to that song. Um, my new life begins with death. Um, 
All my burdens are behind me. Um, I'm now standing on the mountain. Don't cry over my body. It's a beautiful picture. And, you know, as a little kid, I wasn't raised in church. I wasn't raised in any religion for that matter. I didn't know who God was, who Jesus was. But what I knew about that song was it pictured something greater than this life. It pictured hope. And that's what we're talking about here is hope. It's not often that you find words outside of the Bible that can give you that much hope. But that song did that for me as a little kid. It pictured hope. Um, It pictured something greater than this life. Um, Now, he was singing about biblical things, but he wasn't singing the Bible. and um, It's just amazing to me how you can find little things like that that spark hope within you. We need hope, don't we? Yes, sir. Life is difficult. Um, it's hard on us physically. Um, a lot of us are, are aging a little and we start to wrinkle and we lose our hair and our bones ache. Uh, we get sicknesses and diseases, cancers. Uh, life is hard physically, but more than that, even emotionally, there's heartbreak and sorrow and sadness. There's mourning and loss. Sometimes it's hard on us spiritually. We battle uh, spiritual battles with sin and struggles that we face. Uh, life is difficult. But the only thing that really pushes us through that is this concept of hope. It's this looking forward to something better. Now, without hope, we're stuck in this life, aren't we? You're stuck in the difficult life that we have. But at the same time, if this life was easy, and if everything was just hunky-dory and we didn't have problems, there'd be no need for hope, would there? (laughs) We wouldn't have to look forward to something better. Uh, Hope is a, a beautiful concept, and it's perhaps one of the greatest concepts in Scripture. Today we're going to talk about finding hope when we suffer. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. There's perhaps no book better than that in the entire Bible than the book of 1 Peter. Um, Revelation may be a close second, but um, this book is centered on the suffering that these Christians face, and Peter offers them hope all throughout this book. Now, when you start looking at the book of 1 Peter, and you start examining this idea of hope in the book, really, the word hope only occurs five times in the book. It's really not super prevalent. But when you start reading it, this concept of hope bleeds through every teaching and every page and every everything that Peter writes. There's this concept of hope within it. Um, I want to read a couple of passages, uh, but really before we, we jump into this idea of hope, we, we have to have another discussion. Uh, we talked about hope is really pointless if there's no hardship, right? If life is easy, there's no point in hope. So we really need to establish the suffering in this book before we really establish hope. Um, Suffering is a main idea in this entire book. Uh, The word suffer occurs 17 times in a five-chapter book. That's a lot of talk about suffering. And even more than that, the the teaching about suffering outside of just the word suffer is on every page and every chapter, every paragraph in this book, he refers to suffering. I want to look at a couple of passages. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 here in 1 Peter. He introduces this idea. He says, in this, being the the salvation he mentioned in verse 5, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He introduces it and says, you are struggling. You're facing some kind of hardship. Now, as you continue throughout this book, Peter really narrows it down to a very specific kind of suffering that he's going to talk about. And that's what I really want to look at. Um, Turn over to chapter 2, verse 12. And you see, you start to highlight a couple of verses here. You can see the picture of the kind of suffering these guys face. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. He says, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. That's the kind of suffering they faced. Uh, skip down to uh, chapter 3 and read verse 16. You see the same thing. He starts in verse 15, uh, but continues it in verse 16. And he says, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He talks about the thing in which you're slandered and the thing you're reviled in. Um, turn over to chapter 4. You see it again. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Really, we'll start in verse 3 because it's part of a discussion here. Verse 3, he says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. See, Peter says, you don't live like the rest of the Gentiles and the rest of the world, and now they're bad-mouthing and maligning you for it. Skip down to verse 14 here in chapter 4. He says the same thing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, there's a lot more passages about suffering in this book, but those really center on, on the specific kind. Did you notice the three words he used? Slander, revile, malign. Now, some of your translations may differ. There's four Greek words, but three in the New American Standard Bible. That word slander, um, for you Greek scholars, is the word kataleleo. It means to speak down on or to speak against. Uh, the word revile is the one that has two different Greek words. Um, it, it has kind of a broad range of meaning, uh, but it, it, they all are kind of similar. It means to put to shame, uh, to mistreat, to find faults, even to threaten. Now, the one that's interesting is malign. Uh, the Greek word malign is blasphemeo. You hear a word in there? Blaspheme. It means to disrespect or degrade. That's what these guys faced. They were being bad-mouthed for their faith. And really, right here in chapter 4, 3, and 4, it catches the heart of it. They looked different than the world. And they spoke against them. And they looked down on them. And they belittled them. And they mocked them for it. Now, we feel that, don't we? I, I was worried when I got this topic of suffering, because when I look back, we don't suffer the way the early church did in a lot of ways. You know, we're not being drug out of our homes and imprisoned. We're not being burned alive. But as I studied this book, I really kind of wiped the sweat off my brow and said, good thing he's not talking about that. He's talking about something that we relate to. You ever been laughed at by family for dedicating every Sunday you have to going to worship? When my wife and I, when we became Christians... We were picked on by our family members. We were laughed at. Um, it was new for us. And we started telling them, you know, we're not going to join you on family events on Sundays. You know, we're not going to go out to eat with you on Wednesday nights. We've got church to be at. We've got Christians to be with. And they, they almost played the pity party. Like, are you too good for us? Do you, do you think you're better than us? See, that's a, that's a small version of this. But really, in our country, this is being more and more realized Amen. every day. The more we stand up against abortion, the more we're going to be belittled for it. The more we're going to be mocked and laughed at and picked on. The more we stand against homosexuality, Amen. the more they're going to ridicule us and put us in a corner. We become the minority, and they're going to mistreat us and call us closed-minded. The more we stand up for this book, the more they're going to laugh at us and say, this archaic book, you're following that of all things? See, we feel that, don't we? And it impacts the way we live, doesn't it? A lot of us tend to lash out at others when they treat us that way. 
A lot of us tend to cower down and we don't want to stand up for our convictions anymore. And some people flat out want to give up and they want to walk away. They don't want to commit to this anymore. It's too hard. And that is why Peter wrote this book. That's why we have this book in our hands. So we can sit down and study and learn how to deal with this. How do we handle suffering? What's the hope that we have in the face of this? There's a a denominational preacher. uh, His name is Tim Mackey. He does the Bible Project videos where he he draws these pictures and does book overviews. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it. Good material, denominational nonetheless, but uh, listen to what he said about the Christians in, uh, excuse me, the Christians in 1 Peter. He said, the Christians in 1 Peter are a misunderstood minority living under the rule of a different king. That describes the Christians in 1 Peter. They were misunderstood by the people around them. They were mistreated and shoved into a minority category all because they lived for King Jesus. Because they decided to live for a different king than the king of this world. Guys, that's us, isn't it? That's how we feel. We live in a world that we differ from everybody else. We are a minority, whether we like it or not. We're Christians. We live differently than everybody else. And because of that, we're mistreated. We're mocked. People are laughing at us. So how do we deal with it? That's where we get to hope. And that's where we begin to see some of the things Peter offers in this book. Um, This idea of hope. I mentioned he only mentions it five times in this book, but it's really on every page of it. Um, Hope. uh, Y'all have heard numerous lessons on hope at this point. Hope is defined as the looking forward to something with some reason for confidence. It's the idea of a confident anticipation of something you've been promised. That's what hope is. It's looking forward to something that's better. Looking forward to something that's better than what we have here that gets us away from the difficulty in this life. That's what hope is. Now, look at a couple of verses and you'll see how that kind of fits into this. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it, this, this helps us see this picture of hope because here in, a, in America, we say, you know, I hope I get a new pair of shoes for Christmas. That's not biblical hope. That's wishful thinking. We don't say, I, I cross my fingers and I, I really hope I get to go to heaven. No. He says, fix your hope completely. Everything in your being holds on to this concept of hope that grace will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have a confident anticipation. That's hope. That's a biblical hope. Now, when you jump into this book and you start looking at, at all of the ways Peter describes this hope and the way he pictures this hope, there's really a lot to sort through. Um, I found about 31 references in this book to different concepts of hope, and there's probably more than that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have 31 points and talk about hope. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, we're going to boil it down to about three avenues of hope that Peter gives in this book. Three avenues of hope for the suffering Christian. Number one, Christians find hope in their salvation. Peter talks a lot about salvation in this book, particularly in chapter 1. If you start in chapter 1, verse 3, read along with me. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy 
has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Now, he mentions three things there, but they all are kind of the same idea. He says you've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, He says you've been born into an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. In verse 5, he says uh, you've been born into a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those three things are all this same idea about giving these Christians hope in the salvation they have. They have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. They have an inheritance that will never fade away. And they have a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. He's talking about this idea of salvation. And if you skip down to verse 9, uh, really he starts in verse 8. He says in, in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. See, he says you haven't seen Him, but you love Him. You don't even, you've never seen Him physically, but you've committed your entire life life to him and obtaining as the outcome of that kind of faith the salvation of your souls and in verse 10 it's really cool he says as to this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of christ and the glories to follow it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's a long passage, but it's a cool one. Uh, He says in verse 10, as to this salvation, this salvation you've been born again into, the salvation you've obtained through your faith, all of those Old Testament prophets who prophesied of that grace that would come, this is what they studied and dug into and wanted to know more about. And it was revealed to them that they weren't even talking about salvation for themselves. They were talking about what came to you as Christians. And it was revealed through the gospel. And he says, these things, angels even long to look. Now that's cool, isn't it? The salvation that we have is everything that the Old Testament prophets look forward to. That's what we are a part of, and angels long to look into it. In this whole section, starting in verse 3, Peter says, praise God for that. Praise God for that salvation. And there's really another idea, another phrase here besides the word salvation uh, that Peter talks about. In regards to salvation, he starts in verse 5 and he talks about this revealing and the revelation um, and the grace that will be revealed. In verse 5, he says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Uh, says it again in verse 7, uh, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 13, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. See, it's the same idea. It's looking forward to that day of salvation when salvation and grace will be revealed to us. And guys, that's why we have hope. Because we're looking forward to that day when things will be revealed from heaven. We're a part of what every Old Testament prophet ever looked forward to. That's what we are a part of, and we have hope in that. When we face difficult times, when we struggle, when we suffer, when people are mocking us and belittling us, this is what we get to look forward to. 
the grace that will be revealed to us in the last time. Over and over in this book, Peter points them towards that day of salvation. He tells them, this salvation, you've been born into it. It's the salvation you've obtained through your faith. It's the salvation that the prophets wanted you to be a part of. In verse 13, he says, fix your hope on that salvation. When times are difficult, when things are hard, when you don't know where to go, when you feel like giving up, fix your hope on what's laid up before us. That's his point here. That's the hope we have. Our hope is in what comes next. We may be mocked, we may be belittled and picked on and laughed at for what we're following, but in that day, we're not going to be laughed at. We're going to stand before God and the grace from heaven is going to be revealed to us. That's the hope we have, guys. So number one, Christians find hope in their salvation. Number two, Christians find hope in their purpose. Uh, This is really an interesting point to consider here. Uh, There's been numerous studies done on on links to depression and what leads people into a deeper depression. And one of the most common links to depression is that people lose their sense of purpose. Um, There's a a passage or a link in the lectureship book that I've included if you want to read more about that. Um, But it seems that the Christians in 1 Peter were beginning to lose their sense of purpose. Um, They had been brought down low and and laughed at and mocked, and some of them started lashing out and fighting against others, but some outright wanted to give up. They said, what's the purpose of this? We're dealing with all this suffering, and a passage that kind of indicates it, chapter 5, look at chapter 5, verse 12. Peter tells them, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's almost as if he's telling these people, don't give up. You have a purpose. I'm encouraging you and testifying that you are in the right path. Stand firm in that. And he wants them to stick with what they've committed to. But there's really something else he does on every page of this book, in every teaching and every command, to remind them of their purpose. Now let's go back to chapter 1, and we'll look at a couple of phrases and and passages in this book. A fun study you can do on your own one time. Uh, Don't do it right now, um, but... Uh, on your own sometime, go through this book and find every command and every instruction and then look at why he tells them to do it. It's a fascinating study, and we'll do a little bit of it here. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His point is you, your faith is being tested through these trials for the purpose of being found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now before we look at all these, what Peter's trying to emphasize here is Christians have a higher purpose in all of this. You're not just enduring suffering for the sake of enduring it. There's a bigger picture. And he points to that in every one of these teachings like this. He says, so that you may be found in praise and glory and honor in the revelation. It's not just enduring for the sake of enduring, but because there's something better out there. There's a bigger picture. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He tells them, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. See, longing for the Word is not just longing for it to long for it, but it's so that you can grow in respect to salvation. There's a bigger picture here. There's a higher purpose. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. 
You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says you're being built up into a spiritual house for a bigger purpose so that you can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 2 verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, there's a bigger purpose here. He says, you've been called into God's family. You're a part of the chosen people, but for a bigger purpose, so that you can tell people about how great God is and how He's called you out of darkness into the light. Look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. See, it's not just about behaving right for the sake of behaving right, but for a bigger purpose, for the purpose of leading others to glorify God. Uh, skip down to chapter 2, verse 18 and 20, 18 through 20. Uh, he starts in verse 18. Slaves, be submissive to masters, uh, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. You skip down to verse 20 and he tells them why. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. See, the higher purpose, you're not just submitting for the sake of submitting, but you're trying to find favor with God. There's a bigger picture. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. They're looking at the bigger picture of it. Uh, He's showing them the higher purpose. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. uh, He even said Jesus had a higher purpose. For it was better if God should will it. uh, That's the wrong verse. uh, Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. See, even Jesus had a higher purpose he was looking towards. He didn't just die and suffer to die. No, he came to bring us to God. And all through this book, Peter points them to the bigger picture of what they're a part of and reminds them what they're a part of is much bigger than themselves. It's much bigger than just obeying and submitting. But it's for the purpose of uh, a direct aim to please the creator of the universe. It's bigger than this world. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He says it again. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, that's the point. He's pointing them towards the higher purpose, the higher calling they have. It's not just about obeying and it's not just about submitting. It's about appealing to the Creator and seeing that you're a part of something much bigger. And he gives them this purpose. And on and on, all through this book, the point is he's pointing them towards that higher calling. Now, here's what gets me. For a Christian who's been suffering, for a Christian who wants to give up, who's been pushed into this minority category, for a Christian who is, who is being belittled and mocked and laughed at for his faith, do you think being reminded of the bigger picture is going to help him? Amen. Do you think when he takes a step back and says, okay, I'm a part of something much bigger than anything that happens in this world, you think that's going to help him? You think it'll help him to stay faithful? See, guys, this is what our brethren need. A lot of times we think when they're behaving wrong, we just need to quote a verse at them and tell them how to act. But really, we need to get away from looking at the trees and show them the forest. We need to take a step back and say, guys, it's hard. It's difficult. But look at the big picture of everything. You know, we, 
We make a big deal out of the kids who are leaving the church. Um, we make a big deal out of people who walk away. And we say they just love the world more than they do the church and more than they do God. But I don't think that's true. I think they don't see the purpose. They don't see the bigger picture of what we're a part of. They look around and they say, why am I enduring all this suffering just for me to go to church? And they tell me, you're not behaving right. See, but if we tell them, look at what you're a part of, it's much bigger than this world. There's hope on the other side. When they see that bigger purpose, guys, that gives them hope. That instills them in something greater than this universe. And that's what Peter is trying to show these guys. What you're a part of is much bigger than this world. It's much bigger than any suffering. It's much bigger than the mocking and the laughing. It's bigger and it's greater. So number two, Christians find hope in their purpose. Now number three, Christians find hope in their calling. This is a a really cool point in this book, and there's really kind of two lanes of it. Um, There's not two lanes. There shouldn't be, but we kind of divide it into two lanes. Um, Look at chapter 1, verse 1. We'll look at some of this. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Notice what he calls them a couple times in this verse. He says, to those who reside as aliens, some may say pilgrims or sojourners, you don't belong. This isn't where, this isn't your home. You don't belong here. But as you go down at the end of, he says, you're scattered through all these regions, but you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So he's talking about their calling. God has chosen them to be his people. Uh, Even though you don't belong in this world and you've been scattered out all over, people don't like you. They're laughing at you. You're chosen. Not just chosen, but according to the foreknowledge of God. Beforehand. Christians have been chosen. And that's his point. You, you are a part of this calling. And he goes on and talks more about this. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You've been called by the Holy One, and you've been called to be holy. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, notice all the language here. He uses a lot of Old Testament language. Some of you may have this in all caps in your Bible like I do. Um, He's quoting Exodus 19. when he made this covenant with his people. And he told them, you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And now he's looking at Christians and saying, you are a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood. Just like I made that covenant with Israel, I've made a covenant with you and you are my people. And he goes on in verse 10 and quotes Hosea 2. Uh, He says, you were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He tells them, guys, you were once lost and without hope and you had nothing, but now you are my people. I have called you into my family and into a relationship. That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, that's a great thing. And that you talk about these people who are scattered around and being mistreated. For the reminder for them to say, for Peter to write and say, you have been chosen by God. You are part of his people, just like he made that covenant with Israel. And everybody knew about that covenant. And he says, now you Christians have a covenant. And you are the chosen people of God. Now, 
These are the things that we usually talk about when we say we've been called by God. We've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. We've been called to be holy. We've been chosen by Him. What we don't talk about is when you skip down to verses 18 through 20 and 21 in here in chapter 2. He talks about slaves, be submissive to your masters. Uh, then in verse 20, uh, he says towards the end of that verse, but if you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now 21, for you have been called into this, or for this purpose, as the New American Standard said, you've been called into this. Into what? Verse 20, for doing what is right and suffering for it. You've been called into that since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. See, he's saying you've been called into suffering for doing what's right. See, we don't talk about that part of calling. See, but we've been called into suffering. Now, there's something really cool in this verse, and it's that word example, uh, how Christ uh, also suffered, leaving you an example. Um, the word for you Greek guys, it's the word hupogramos, and it means to, uh, it's like an underwriter or underwriting. Um, the word has a cool history, and the idea is uh, a school teacher using the, it's, uh, how do you describe it? Um, the word was referred, it referred to a teacher who drew guiding lines for his students to learn how to write. Um, some of you in grade school may remember you got a sheet of paper and it had the lines on it and the dotted line letters and you would trace those dotted lines to learn how to write it and then next to it you would write it on your own. Those dotted lines is what this word means. Yeah. It's the guiding lines of the teacher and Peter says that's what Jesus is for you. He's the guiding line for you to follow in his footsteps. Now following what? In suffering for doing what is right. See we're called into suffering. Now, he continues in verse 22 and talks more about it. He says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth? Verse 23, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Uh, we've been called into following Jesus through suffering. Now, when you think about the implications of this, Peter's really getting at the behavior in the face of suffering. But there's something else in this. When you think about the implications of this, if Jesus is our model and our example, it is inevitable that we are going to suffer. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what this is saying. If Jesus is our example, if we are following in His steps, if we're doing what He did and saying what He said and, and acting how He acted, we will be persecuted. We will suffer. Guys, we have been called into that. That's part of this calling. And we don't teach people this. And that's why when you get to chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. He says, you shouldn't be surprised by this. See, but when we don't teach people this, they're surprised by it. And then they go out in the world and they face a world that hates them and belittles them and mocks them and they're surprised and they're caught off guard and either they lash out and fight people like Peter's talking about, they revile in return or they cower down and they don't stand up for it anymore or they just want to give up. They don't want to stand firm in it anymore. And that's why we have to teach people about what their calling means. It's not just about being called into God's family. That's a great encouragement. See, but there's also encouragement in knowing that we've been called into suffering. It's been amazing to me that the Bible writers talk so positively about suffering. 
I've never understood that. And maybe, maybe that's just my ignorance. And I think, what, what do they know that I don't know? Well, reading this book has helped me. Look in chapter 4. Uh, we read verse 12. Let's keep reading in verse 13. He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. I love, I've grown to love this passage because notice a few things. Verse 13, you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, verse 14. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, glorify God. Now, that amazes me. Why can they say that? Well, it's because of what we saw in chapter 2, that Jesus is the example, and we're following in His footsteps. And He says in verse 13, at the revelation of His glory, you will rejoice because of your suffering. In verse 14, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. See, when we are suffering, it's evidence that we are right where we need to be. It shows that we are walking where Jesus walked. Now, he says in verse 15, you better not suffer for doing wrong. A lot of our brethren are suffering for their own wrongdoing. Uh, but he says, don't be sure you're not doing that. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, you are standing right where you need to be. You're standing where Jesus stood. Guys, there's hope in that. Amen. There's hope in knowing that we are suffering as Christ suffered. This passage has helped me understand why they talk so positively about suffering. Suffering's hard, but it's what we're called into. We've been called to follow where Jesus went. He's our example. He's the guiding line of the teacher for us to follow in His footsteps. And He says, when you share the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing. Verse 13. Verse 14. When you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, glorify God. There's hope found in suffering. There's hope found in our calling. We've been called into this relationship with God. We've been called out of darkness into His light. We've been called to follow Jesus and to suffer the way He suffered. And there's hope in that. So number three, Christians find hope in their calling. Without hope, we'd be miserable. There's no doubt. Um, we face suffering. We've committed our lives to follow something that is so out of this world that we're going to be mocked for it. We look completely different. That's what chapter 4, verse 4 says. They're surprised you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They blaspheme you. They degrade you. They disrespect you. Guys, it's hard to be a Christian. It's not easy. We face difficulty. But there's so much hope that's found in being a Christian. We are a misunderstood minority living under the rule of a different king. And we've been given hope as this minority. We're the only minority in the world that has this kind of hope. We're the only group of people in the world that has this kind of hope. The book of 1 Peter is, is saturated with hope for Christians on every page. Today we looked at three sources. Number one... Christians find hope in their salvation. We look forward to a day when the grace will be revealed from heaven and we're going to the other side. Jamie Johnson sang that song and said, I'm standing on the mountain. That's what we're looking forward to, guys. 
we find hope in that salvation. Number two, Christians find hope in their purpose. We recognize that what we're a part of is much bigger than this world. It's much bigger than the comments we get, the bad mouthing, the belittling. Uh, you know, what we're a part of is bigger than all of that. We find hope in our purpose. And number three, Christians find hope in their calling. We've been called into the family of God. We're the chosen race and the royal priesthood. And we've been called to follow following Jesus' footsteps. And we can rejoice in the fact that we suffer in that. Christians find hope in their calling. I pray for the church in the coming years because this is getting worse here in this country. Uh, the more our world goes this way, the more Christians stand out over here. Uh, the more we stand up against things like abortion, and homosexuality, and transgender issues. And the more we start to stand up for this book and preach these principles, the more we're going to look different. The more we, we live differently in this world, the more we're going to be mocked. We're going to be laughed at. We're going to be looked at like we've got six eyeballs on our head. People aren't going to like us. That's just the facts. I mean, that's what Jesus faced. But there's hope in it. And I pray for the church in the coming years that we can take books like 1 Peter and glean the hope that we have as Christians and glean how to respond to these situations. As Peter said in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. It's hard to bear up under suffering. It's hard not to lash out. It's hard not to give up. It's hard not to stop standing up for our convictions. It's hard to bite your tongue sometimes. It's hard to keep your mouth shut on Facebook. I mean, but guys, we're a part of something different. And Jesus has called us to follow His example and to be different in this world and to live differently. When reviled, He didn't revile in return. I want to close with one of Peter's last statements in the book. Chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, encouraging and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Suffering's hard, but Peter wrote this book so that we could be encouraged and to testify that we are right where we need to be and to stand firm in it. I appreciate your time. Thanks for putting up with me for an hour. Well, we've been filled with hope. Yeah. But here's something else. Don't you feel like you know the book of First Peter better? Yeah. That's the reason we wanted him to come preach at Conifer. Amen. He opens up the Scriptures and lets the Scriptures speak. I'm so pleased he's there. Let's have a closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful that you've given us the book of First Peter that we can have that hope. We recognize we live in a society that doesn't view things the way we do. Help our people, Father, to not be ashamed, but to glorify you in this. Help us, Heavenly Father, to let them see the hope that we have and to be able to give that answer as to why we have that hope. <laughs> We're grateful for Colton. We're grateful for the other young men who are moving into this world to help lead the church through this dark time. 
We're grateful for their knowledge, for their ability to proclaim your word clearly. We ask, Father, for you to bless the church, help us to be a shining light for the communities where we're located. We ask now, Father, for you to dismiss us in your love and care. Go with us through our afternoon and evening's activities. And we pray, Father, that as we finish this day, we'll prepare ourselves to worship you tomorrow and that you will accept us. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Great. Great exposition.